0: Alert
1: Medic One respond. Three, two, one. You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. Hello and welcome to the Alert Medic One Podcast. My name is Mustafa Sadiq. And I'm Ken Sander. Today we're going to be discussing vital signs, the different tools we use for our patient assessment.
0: Vital signs are a huge part of our patient assessment. However, they are not the entire patient assessment. It's very important to understand that we use vital signs as a guide throughout patient assessment, but you always need to look at the entire clinical presentation. Now vital signs are important because other than the respiratory rate the patient really can't fake or control them so they're a good resource but they can't paint the whole picture so it's important not to get focused in on vital signs.
1: So this is going to be a a series of episodes uh, so please be sure to follow us as we uh, publish a few different ones and uh, I think we're going to get started right Ken? I think so. All right what's the first one we're going to be talking about Ken?
0: Well I think it it's important to understand there's four traditional vital signs. There's blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, temperature. Sometimes you'll see pulse oximetry, SpO2 thrown in there. We're not going to touch on that today. We're going to stick with the first four. Sometimes you also hear height and weight thrown in there as well, but that isn't something we are regularly utilizing in EMS. So the first thing we're going to talk about is respiratory rate. Respiratory rate to me is probably the most important vital sign, and it's the one that we probably do the worst job of assessing. When you think about what's normal for an adult, we're looking at a rate of 12 to 20. For peds, the rates vary based on age. In an infant, according to PALS, 30 to 53. A toddler, 22 to 37. Preschoolers, 20 to 28. School-age kids, 18 to 25. And adolescents, of course, are in the normal adult range of 12 to 20. So respiratory rate is regulated by the chemoreceptors in your body. So there's central chemoreceptors in the medulla oblongata and the peripheral chemoreceptors in the aorta, which have actually less of an impact than those in the medulla oblongata. Basically, the way they work in a normal, healthy person is they sense an increase in CO2. And then they cause you to breathe to blow off CO2. Now, this mechanism can be damaged, particularly in smokers. You may have what's called a hypoxic drive, where actually the body responds to lowered oxygen levels, but that's not the norm in patients. Respiratory rate is an excellent indicator of acute distress or compensation for a life threatening problem, such as uncompensated shock. Respiratory rate is usually the first thing, if not one of the first things, to increase in patients in shock states and in a lot of other distress states. It's easily assessed from across the room. You can walk into a building or into a room, look at a patient and say, hey, they're really tachypneic. This is a problem. They're having a hard time breathing. It's also associated with the need for critical intervention. If they're too fast or too slow, you may need to assist ventilations. It's important not to take respiratory rate and look at it as its own thing. It, it really needs to be associated with other key anatomical findings, including the tidal volume of the patient, which, of course, we can't really measure per se in uh, you know in, in reality. But a normal tidal volume is about 500 milliliters or seven milliliters per kilogram. And it's also important to look at the rate, excuse me, the work of breathing. Is there accessory muscle use? Is there tripoding? nasal flaring, you know, retractions, any of that kind of stuff? So it's usually probably realistically the least frequently assessed by many EMS providers. I know a lot of people just look at a patient and say, oh, 16. Uh, But that's really doing a disservice to the patient. And that is not It's just not appropriate. It's not good medicine.
1: I think one of the biggest things that I see as a QA officer that really frustrates the hell out of me is when people just put in like a respiratory rate of 20. I'm like, do you understand that you're saying that your priority three patient is tachyptic, right? I mean, 20 is technically, you know, a tachyptic patient. So I think uh, respiratory rate is something that I use. Very frequently, and you know what I utilize, you know, because obviously we're not going to be as paramedics; we're doing so many other things in the back of the box. I'm not going to be constantly, you know, counting the patient's respirations. But what I am going to be using is, and this is going to be something we talk about in a later episode. But I use the waveform capnography tool to help me measure the respiratory rate and the quality. I think when I walk into, you know, I just had an asthma patient yesterday. As soon as I walked in, she was tripoding. She she wasn't able to talk to me, and she had a you could add audible wheezing and her work of breathing was way up her respiratory rate was way up and within the first 10 seconds of my call I knew that that patient was sick and I needed to intervene immediately to uh, you know potentially you know save her life if she was going to decompensate more on the other end when I walk into a residence and the patient's just relaxed maybe smoking a cigarette respiratory rate of 12 13 I'm like okay maybe I'm not too worried you know of course that you know, as we talked about earlier, we don't concentrate on only just the one vital sign. We look at all vital signs, but that's going to be an indicator for me of how sick that patient is as a uh, early indicator.
0: Yeah, I think those are all great points, and I really do encourage people to use waveform capnography whenever they can whenever it's indicated it's a great way to monitor somebody's respiratory
1: system. And i think that's a good thing uh, definitely reach out to us to let us know if you guys are actually using waveform capnography where you are at uh, you know in the country or you know around the world i think pretty much right now you know it's a and i don't want to go too deeply into waveform capnography, but I think it's a standard for you know the intubated patient, but I don't know how many people are using uh, nasal intubation. But I digress. Let's continue the respiratory rate. Yeah. Sure.
0: So that's really all I had for respiratory rate, unless you have any other comments, Moose? No, no. I think that's good. I, all right. I, yeah. So we'll move on to the heart rate. Also a very critical vital sign. Heart rate is, again, one of the earliest indications that somebody's in distress. So for a normal healthy adult, of course, the normal heart rate is 60 to 100. Pediatric normal heart rates, again, from PALS, we have neonates 100 to 205, infant 100 to 180, toddlers 98 to 140, preschoolers 80 to 120, school age kids 75 to 118, and adolescents are, again, in the normal adult range 60 to 100. So the heart rate is regulated by the autonomic nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system slows through vagal response, and the sympathetic Nervous system increases through catecholamines, such as epinephrine, that stimulate the heart to beat faster. The pulse is uh, actually a mechanical result of an electrochemical process in the heart. Some of you guys will remember back to the sodium-potassium pump and all that kind of fun stuff that causes electrical discharge in the heart. And, you know, the muscles contract, all that good stuff. As I said, a great indicator of physiologic distress. It's a very early finding in shock patients. If you're getting to your shock patient, by the time their blood pressure is low, you're way behind the eight ball. Basically, once that heart rate goes up, you've got somebody in distress or compensating for something or they've got some kind of distress going on, you need to figure out what it is and treat that. It can be distorted by medications the patient takes, like beta blockers, so you can have somebody who's lost a significant amount of blood And instead of becoming tachycardic, they don't because they're on beta blockers and that heart rate is inhibited from speeding up. So that is important to remember. And along with the actual rate, do consider the quality and rhythm of the pulse. Is it strong, is it weak, is it rapid, is it slow? Those are all important things.
1: Yeah, so, uh, and the the big thing that, so, you know, the equation for cardiac output is stroke volume times heart rate, right? So what's the first thing your body's gonna do when it's trying to compensate for a decreased cardiac output? It's gonna increase that heart rate. And uh, another tool that we're gonna talk about is EKGs, which is something that I'm very passionate about, and that's, uh, you know, a tool that, you know, at least uh, advanced life support providers are gonna be, should be utilizing as much as possible to be looking at you know the rate rhythm and quality of the heart rate. Uh, so when I was in paramedic school, one of the biggest things that Ken was, you know, harped on us was not only, you know, is it regular or irregular, but what's the actual morphology that we're looking at on the EKG? So the the regular, you know, not the regular, the physiological norm is the heart rate starts from the S A node, you know, goes through the internodal pathway to the A V node, and then goes through, you know, the bundle of HIS all across the ventricles. I know we're doing a very basic job at the physiology. We're gonna have additional episodes where we really dive into the physiology. But, you know, that's one of the things where we we really don't want to lose people by not starting at the basics. And, you know, that's why we're taking that, uh, you know, that basic approach. I think the heart rate is, you know, something just from my experience, even with arrhythmias at You know, they anything above 100 is abnormal. But I really start seeing my, you know, my how should I say, my symptomatic patients at a rate of 150
0: and above. Uh, Would you agree with that, Ken? Yeah, absolutely. Anything over 150 to 160 is probably not a. It can be. I shouldn't say probably not, but often it's a rate problem as opposed to a symptom. You know, certainly you can have sinus tach at 180. So I'm not going to say it never happens, but usually once we get over that 150 to 160 range, that's where we're really starting to get into rhythm problems and the heart rate being a problem rather than a symptom of a problem.
1: Yeah, a really good benchmark to utilize is a 220 minus the age. That's the equation for the maximum heart rate that you should that a patient should have. Anything. Over that is usually, you know, definitely of a you know a pathological nature. I think that, and that's a key point too, right? Because like as our patients are younger, their heart rate you know can go a little bit higher but you know in the average you know the adult patient that we usually see the the heart rate's definitely a good marker what i do want to comment on however is the potential for a heart rate to be increased by you know a, a psychiatric means if a you know if a patient is having you know an acute psychological crisis they can you know the heart rate can be Increased, but when you look at the morphology, and again, I don't want to dive too deep into EKGs. When you look at the morphology of the QRS complex, you're going to see a P wave, right? Because that, what's that showing? That's showing that the, the heart, the beat is starting in the SA node, which is physiologically normal. We don't want to, like, uh, I've had so many paramedics, you know, uh, suggest or, you know, QA me, you know, when I was an earlier paramedic and asked me why I didn't electrically cardiovert a uh, sinus tach that's not how the you know, that's not how it works uh, and that's something else we'll, we'll dive into i think i'm digressing again but yeah I, I think that's all i got for heart rate i'm sure we're missing something but i mean we'll, we'll we'll definitely talk about it in later episodes as well
0: sure so the next vital sign we'll talk about is blood pressure and blood pressure to me is probably the least interesting or i don't want to say least important because of course there's value to it But I can walk in a room and know if you're perfusing without taking your blood pressure, right? It's usually pretty evident, you know, if there's a perfusion problem. Now, blood pressure is important. So, of course, a normal adult blood pressure is about 120 over 80. Neonates, 67 to 84 over 35 to 53. Infants, 72 to 104 over 37 to 56. Toddlers, 86 to 106 over 42 to 63. Preschoolers, 89 to 112 over 46 to 72 school-age kids, 97 to 115 over 57 to 76. Pre-adolescents, 102 to 120 to 61 over 80. And adolescents are, again, around the normal adult age range. So blood pressure is monitored by baroreceptors in the aortic arch and carotid sinus. The systolic pressure in the arteries during ventricular contraction is influenced by cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance. And the diastolic is the pressure in the arteries when the ventricles are at rest. So it can vary slightly throughout even short periods of time. And it does provide a good indication, you know, if the patient is perfusing or not. But what really provides a better indication is the mean arterial pressure or the MAP. When we look at MAP, we are basically looking at the perfusion pressure of the organ. So, when we calculate MAP, it's really an estimate. It's done through a mathematical equation, which is the diastolic blood pressure plus one third of the systolic pressure minus diastolic blood pressure. A normal adult MAP is 70 to 110. Less than 65 is bad in an adult. For kids, neonates are 45 to 60, infants 50 to 62. Toddlers, 49 to 62. Preschoolers, 58 to 69. School-age kids, 66 to 72. Pre-adolescents, 10 to 12-year-olds, 71 to 79. And adolescents, of course, are in the adult range as well. True MAP can only be known by arterial monitoring. You can have an acceptable blood pressure with a bad MAP. You know, blood pressure of 94 over 50 is a little borderline, but the MAP is low at 64.4 and there is some talk that low MAP can indicate whether you should give vasopressors versus fluids. And MAP is a topic that we're really going to dive into in its own show. We just wanted to give you a quick overview.
1: Yeah, so I think blood pressure is, I think for us, we're in a unique situation where when you're, you know, if you're in a city and you're bouncing up and down, or, you know, whatever monitor you're deciding to use that day, you know, pack or, yeah, you know, what are the other big ones? Zoll. Uh, Zoll, yeah. I think we all understand that the blood pressure is going to be very variable. You know, I, I have a, yeah, I always use a textbook example when I'm teaching where I had a priority patient that I was you know monitoring her vital signs every ten minutes or so, and I had a student with me, and the student freaked out. She was in the captain's chair. She's like, the patient's pressure is seventy eight. You know, systolic, but was it actually not really right? The you know the bouncing up and down has been known to Throw off blood pressure readings. I will say that when I go into a house, I do try to urge individuals to at least get the first blood pressure by you know manual auscultation. I don't know what your practices can, but just because I've been
0: burned a couple times
1: with not doing that.
0: Yeah, it's just good practice to get a manual blood pressure first, and then you know you can kind of trust your monitor from there. If you see anything funky on the monitor, you probably want to recheck a manual blood pressure. I had a allergic reaction patient, like a true anaphylaxis patient, when I was early on
1: as an EMT where we ended up having an ALS upgrade and I and I like freaked out because I wasn't hearing anything where I would usually hear and I was a you know brand new EMT and end up guy had a systolic of like eighty or yeah. something, right? And uh, I think that's you know, I think that's always good practice to have that first, you know manual blood pressure. And I understand, you know, you're going to find situations where that's just just not possible, right? Depending Mm -hmm. on what kind of house you're in and stuff like that. You might not be able to take a knee and, you know, the crappy wood board floor that you have. But I think that's good practice. I think when we are talking about blood pressure, it's really a good guide for when we're, you know, kind of going back to the arrhythmias, like looking at, you know, asymptomatic versus asymptomatic patient. Why is that? Uh, So we're kind of going back to, you know, the cardiac output, right? We talked about stroke Volume times heart rate. Uh, you know that if that if the pump's not working, if there's a a problem with the peripheral vasculature, that blood pressure is going to go down. I don't want to go too deep into shock physiology because we're going to be talking about that in uh, later episodes. But again, the basics are as Ken read them. Ken, you got anything else? For
0: yeah, me? I think we can just wrap up real quick with temperature. It doesn't need to be a real in depth discussion. Uh, and then we'll close out the show. So remember, normal temperature is about 98.6 or 37 Celsius. Anything below 95 we're in hypothermia territory, anything above 100.4, we're talking a febrile or hyperthermic patient. Temperature is regulated in the hypothalamus. There's a lot of talk about accuracy of temperatures as far as tympanic versus oral or axillary or rectal. Rectal is really the the most accurate temperature. Even oral temperature can get distorted. Important to remember, and we'll touch on this when we talk about sepsis, infection does not always present with a fever, uh, and that includes sepsis, can actually have hypothermia. Temperature can be absolutely crucial to your assessment, or it can be completely uninformative. You know, if you have A chest pain patient and you're checking for a temperature if they have a temperature you know that could indicate they've got a a serious infection you know if they've got a chest pain and a cough stuff like that or if you have a drunk in the street on a cold night you know temperature is going to be important however if you have someone with a broken arm Temperature is probably not quite as important. Remember, there are non-infectious causes of fever like thyroid storm, excited delirium syndrome, stimulant toxicity, malignant hyperthermia, heat stroke, heat exhaustion, you know, stuff like that. And hypothermia can be caused by sepsis and myxodemic coma. So, there's lots of things out there. So, I don't want to take too much of your time out after that. Moose, do you have anything you want to add about temperature?
1: Yeah, so I think, and we'll talk about this at the end, but a temperature is a great tool when it's relevant, right? Yeah. Um, so,
0: I, and yeah, I think that's key. When it's yeah, relevant, like yeah. I said, if you have a broken arm, probably not vital to get a temperature right away. Mm-hmm but if you have respiratory distress or you have an altered mental status we might want to know if you've been laying out in the street all night probably <laughs> important
1: and so i'm going to put my idea on that a little bit here so if your patient does have a fever you know and they all do you know meet the clinical umbrella of an infectious disease don't ignore that symptom. I know that seems obvious, but from a QA standpoint, people, you know, oftentimes won't even get a temperature. You know, that you have a sick case that they, they just don't get a temperature. I mean, the two things that I always push for is, you know, get that temperature and ask for a travel history. I'm not going to get into like other, you know, high consequence pathogen stuff, but that's so critical, right? It's a basic assessment tool that's easy to get. You know, depending on, of course, if you guys carry the equipment or not. But why not? It takes 30 seconds. Like, it can be such a, a great tool. A lot of our sepsis criteria is led by the temperature, along with other things. And I loved what Ken said about there might not be a fever in a patient that has an infection, especially in some of our immune compromised patients, whether it's an older patient. It's so important to get it, but don't let it be the, the hallmark of your assessment. I just want to, you know, before we finish up, I do want to say one thing about vital signs in general, as we continue our series in the next few episodes, no one tool is the best bet, right? Uh, we, Your complete assessment is going to give you the, you know, that clinical umbrella, right? It's critical that you always gather a complete history from your patient, do a complete exam with, you know, as many of these vital signs as you can, do a physical exam, because that the totality of all of your findings are going to paint the picture of exactly what's going on. It's going to lead you towards your, you know, your differential diagnosis, which is going to not only be communicated to the hospital once you get there, but it's also going to be guiding your treatment as a clinician, right? The tools that you have, the picture that you've drawn for yourself with the assessment findings that you've had,
0: lead your hand in the treatments that you're going to be administering. Yeah, I think that's a great way to wrap this up, Moose. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at alert underscore medic one. Tell check, your friends. Tell Definitely your friends. Tell me. Share. Yeah. Share. Check out our articles. Please, if you have questions, comments, topics you'd like to see discussed, critique and feedback, line.
1: too, please. Absolutely. What I know it that? sounds like we're like reading numbers, but I mean, it's so critical to give you guys this foundational information. So as we move forward, we have a solid foundation to be working off of. All right. Thank you for listening and have a good day. Bye for now. Thanks. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.